One contemporary Bible translation renders verse 25 of our text this morning, the foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strengths. If you think about those words, I wonder, who could argue with that? That's just basically a definition of who God is. The wisest of human plans pale into what would be considered even the foolishness of God's plans. And the strongest part of human strength pales in comparison to what you would call God's weakest aspect. Who would argue with that? Because this is God. And yet in our text this morning, and I hope to show you sometimes often in our culture, and sadly sometimes in our lives, we question that. We're dealing with the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, and we're looking at an issue that we might call worldliness, the way we think, the way we look at the world, the way we make decisions, being driven by a worldly, this worldly perspective, as opposed to the perspective that we would call the gospel, or maybe we would call it the Word of God. And what we found last week in 1 Corinthians 1, the apostle was writing to this church that was divided, and one of the reasons they were so divided was because they were so fixated and so enamored with the wisdom of the world around them that they had emptied the cross, if it's possible, they had emptied the cross of its power, we found, verse 17. Why would anyone do this? What they were doing is they were leveraging the the worldly wisdom around them, the contemporary conventional wisdom of the day, whether it was philosophy or eloquence, the, the values of the world around them, and they found that those were useful to promote themselves, and while they were doing that, they neglected and ignored and functionally, therefore, denied the wisdom of God. What does this look like? Well, in Corinth, and I think in your life and my life as well, it, it looks like a, a, an enamorment, a, a, an attraction to sophistication, an emphasis on human skill and acumen and creativity, and that easily connects to the idea of status. In other people's eyes, we want people to think that we are somehow significant. We want people to think that we possess some kind of status. And so in that process, we chase after a sophistication that inevitably sooner or later contradicts and diminishes the wisdom of God. That's what we're going to find. And so there's an emphasis on appearance and show instead of content and truth. And so if you want to think about sophistication, here's the issue the Corinth believers were dealing with, and my suggestion is we struggle with it too. You compare the surrounding sophistication of the culture around us, and you compare that to Jesus hanging on a Roman cross. And the perception was perhaps a sense of embarrassment, embarrassed of their Jesus. Mockery about the cross has been around for centuries. Perhaps many of you have heard of the graffiti that was discovered. They likely think it was from around 200 A.D. And this is graffiti in Rome, and it is a crude drawing, a cartoon, of a man bowing before a figure being crucified. 
And the figure being crucified is a human body, but has the head of a donkey. And the caption on the cartoon of the graffiti is, Alex Minos worships his God. Alex Minos worships his God. A crucified God. And as far as the world is concerned, as far as sophistication is concerned, that's just folly. That's just foolishness. And what was happening in Corinth, evidently, and what happens in our lives, I fear, is that we're confronted with what is really a a shameful, somewhat even shocking message of Jesus being crucified, and maybe we're embarrassed by it. Or maybe we become overly familiar with it, and then we are forgetful. Or perhaps we're apathetic to it because we're distracted by other things. And if what living for Jesus means, means owning the shame and the weakness of Jesus hanging on a cross, we don't want our neighbors to sense that out of us. And the people at work, we want them to have a different kind of respect. And so we are drawn away and we are lured away with temptation. Paul seemed to recognize this. You remember that passage in Galatians chapter 6 where he says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see what he's saying there? He not only is valuing the cross, but he's saying that the experience of the cross, the the message of the cross, owning that identity with the cross is a means by which you separate yourself from the values of the world and you separate yourself unto your God. So this is an abiding problem and temptation. Let's go to 1 Corinthians and let me show you what I mean. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in your Bibles, please. And I found something to be astonishing this week and also somewhat ironic. And most of you know that I love irony. The only thing I love more than irony is sarcasm. All right, so the irony of this is that basically what Paul is doing is he's addressing the problem of being enamored with eloquence and yet I find this text to be stunningly eloquent. I I don't know how to explain that, but as you read these words, you think about it. Paul does an amazing job, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to lay open for us the danger of being too enamored with eloquence. Maybe this is a good time just to stop and to say, nothing we are suggesting this morning, last week, or the weeks to come, nothing we are saying is to suggest that as we go about life, and particularly as we go about ministry, we should do so in a sloppy way. Paul is not condemning excellence in ministry. We find ourselves continually challenged. We were challenged this morning by technology, you know, with the slides. We thought technology ought to be a blessing, and the musicians didn't know it, but it didn't go well with the slides, because technology betrayed us this morning. But We should strive as best as we are able to serve, to live with excellence, with creativity. That's just good stewardship. But what the message, the message that we find in 1 Corinthians and even this morning, the message we need to take to heart is that if that becomes our foundation and our focus, then we are leaving the power that God himself has designed into the message of the gospel. And we end up with just fluff. And so that's what we're going to see this morning and next week as well. But we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and again, I want you to note the eloquence 
of this passage warning us about philosophy and eloquence. 1 Corinthians 1, let's begin with verse 17, our last verse from last week. 1 Corinthians 1, 17, and I'll remind you as I read, this is God's word for us today. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Just note Greeks and Gentiles are used as synonyms for non-Jewish people. But to those, verse 24, but even though it's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now this morning, there are, there are four questions that are used in Bible study, and that I use them often in sermon preparation. And as I was working on this text, it seemed to me that the text just lays out along the lines of these four questions. And you can ask these questions of any Bible text, and the Bible text is usually addressing one of them at least. And what I found is as I worked through the text, all four questions kind of flowed out of the out of the text itself. And so that's the way we've designed the sermon this morning. These four questions, you can ask a text, what does this mean? You can say, is there evidence for this? You can ask, what difference does this make? And also, how does this show up in real life? And those are good Bible study questions to keep in your back pocket, in your Bible study toolbox to pull out when you're studying the Bible. We're going to use them this morning for this text. It's a template that we're going to lay over these verses about the powerful, important message of the cross. So, for example, verse 18, we're going to ask the question, what did or what does this mean in verse 18? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us, note there's a contrast, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, look at it one more time and note the surprise. The contrast that Paul has been drawing and will continue to draw is between folly and what? Wisdom. What is true wisdom? But that's not what he says, in verse 18 at least. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the, and you would think he would say, wisdom of God. But he doesn't, does he? He says, the power of God. And this first truth is really the foundation of everything that Paul is arguing. And it is this truth that God's folly is really the greatest power. What would be perceived as the foolishness of God is the greatest power in the universe. 
It's the greatest power we will ever know. And why is that? Because it's saving us. It is through this foolish, quote-unquote, message that God has saved us and is saving us and will save us. What this text is saying is that God's power to have saved us and to keep saving us, it's an ongoing status, and this power is the greatest power we could ever imagine. And so the implication is, why would we trade that away for something less effective, less powerful? It's a very practical argument. Paul acknowledges this in Romans 1. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. There it is again, you see, the temptation and the sophistication of the world to be ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek. It's it's the same terminology of our text in 1 Corinthians 1. So we should note, first of all, I think this through. We can take this for granted, and we shouldn't. We should stop and think it through. When he says the word of the cross, he's talking about something that really happened. It has a historical referent. It's not just an idea. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just a a pattern of thinking that was developed in some ancient culture across the sea. This was something that happened in space and time that a literal Jewish person who ultimately was God in flesh was crucified on a Roman cross. And Paul's confidence in that is the foundation for what he calls the gospel and this is the greatest power we could know. You need to note that, that when he says the word of the cross, the implication of it is that this really happened. That somewhere around 2,000 years ago in Palestine, that area of the world that even this week once again is bloodily contested with contention and violence, in that part of the world, the Roman Empire crucified a rabbi from Galilee whose name was Jesus Christ. That's Paul's message. By the way, don't forget we also have chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians which says that not only did he experience crucifixion, but then he came out of the tomb in resurrection. Paul will get to that, but he's not emphasizing that right now because it's the message of the word of the cross that is power, and we have to ask, why is that so? Well, we'll get there before we're through. The other thing I want you to note is that what he's saying here is God's power. It's something that God has done. Once again, it's not just some ethereal theory. It's not just some idea, but God himself working in history has brought about some kind of powerful deliverance and it's the way we're saved. Now you just have to stop and you have to consider what was he saying when he talked about the cross? How would his original hearers or readers, how would they have heard that phrase? Once again, to our disadvantage, we've heard it so often, we sing it so often, it loses its impact for us. Think about the images and the discomfort that we get when we hear the term Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Think about the images and the discomfort we get when we hear the term Auschwitz or Dachau. Think about the the strangeness it would be if for your nephew or your niece, if it was their birthday or they were graduating, you gave them a necklace or a bracelet and hanging on the bracelet or the necklace was a little uh, electric chair. That kind of 
disconnect, that kind of discomfort, really doesn't even come close to what those first century hearers would have thought and experienced when Paul said, this is the word of the cross, and it's the word of the cross that brings our power. You know about crucifixion, right? It was a horrible death. It was filled with torture and shame. So much so that it was illegal to crucify a citizen of Rome unless the emperor signed off on it. Cicero, the famous orator, is known to have said that it was inappropriate to even speak of crucifixion in polite society. And I want to tell you, this was the society that had the gladiator games. But they said, we don't want to talk about crucifixion. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that in the times around the times around when Jesus lived in Palestine, thousands were crucified in Palestine because of Roman rebellions, rebellions against the Roman government. And when one was crucified, one died either from asphyxiation because he no longer had the strength to raise up and catch a breath, or out of shock, or simply out of blood loss. Crucifixion was torture, and it was shameful. Unimagined pain and stunning shame. And so to people who are perishing, not just 2,000 years ago, but even today, to people who are perishing, who are, who are not being saved, who are outside of Christ, to use another Pauline phrase, to those who are perishing, this is not what wise. This is not wisdom. This doesn't represent power. As my son said in dealing with this text, that's crazy talk to people. To think that a cross would be the source of power and of wisdom. Because after all, where is real power? The crucifixion evokes shame and defeat and weakness. It was designed to do so. We know where power is. Power is in education, right? Power is in sophistication. Power is in success. Power is in your bank account, in your portfolio. Powers on your CV with all of your achievements in education. That's where power comes from. Power is how big your house is, how many parking spots you have in Santa Barbara, right? That's power. But this text says that power is in the word of the cross. It's the greatest power there is. You can see how countercultural this is. It was countercultural in Corinth. It's countercultural today. If you want to experience this, if you want to just do a little experiment, go out to UCSB or go up to City College and stand on the corner and talk to people about the only hope in life is Jesus Christ crucified. See how well you're received. Because it's folly to the world. But it is the greatest power there is. Now, that's a stunning statement, I think. And so Paul goes on to Marshal evidence to this. And he gives two grounds of evidence in verses 20, or excuse me, verses 19 and verses 20. The first ground of evidence is God's word. In other words, he quotes the Bible to marshal evidence for this fact that, that the greatest power on earth is God's folly, the folly of the cross. He's quoting from Isaiah. And he's recounting an event that happened in the history of Judah. Look what he says in verse 19. For it is written. In other words, you understand that's he's saying, for God's word says. It is written, 
I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now this occasion, in what you and I would call Old Testament history, it was a time in which Judah was threatened, and instead of believing in the promises and provisions of their God, they were trying to buy an alliance with Egypt. Now, going to Egypt in the Bible is almost always, almost always a bad idea, right? And they weren't trusting the word of God through the prophets that God would protect his people Judah. They were trying to buy allegiances with pagan nations around them. And in the middle of that, God says, that wisdom, that, that diplomatic approach, that, that wisdom that says, this is what we need to do, apart from what God says, God says, I'm just going to thwart that. I'm going to destroy that. I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise, quote-unquote. You see, there are really two kinds of wisdom, but really there's only one. And that's part of the problem with this text. Because the wisdom of the world is not really wisdom, is what God is saying. So we have to give air quotes, as it were, when we talk about the wisdom of the world. And that's what the Bible says. There's the evidence. God's Word. God's Word. There's an example here of how God takes the wisdom of this world and considers it foolish and says, I'm going to do away with it. There's also, though... There's also evidence from practical experience. There's a sense in which Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he just says, hey, look around. If you want to know the value of the world's wisdom, look around. And that's what he does in verse 20. He marshals the evidence of man's experiences. Because you see what he says in verse 20? He asks questions. Where is the one who is wise? And by the way, you read that and I'm thinking just about everywhere. Like, like in the eyes of the world, there are wise guys everywhere. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Likely wise has to do with a Greek uh, philosopher. Likely scribe is referencing a Jewish expert in what you and I would call the Old Testament. Who, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And again, pretty much everywhere. But look at the summary at the end of the verse. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You recognize what this is. This is God saying, how's all that working for you? That's precisely what this text is doing. Paul says, look around. I mean, I mean, what is this wisdom? What has it gained you? And we would ask the same question in 2021. The sophistication of all of the wisdom of the world, what has it gained us? And you would answer, well, we have antibiotics, and we have air conditioning, and we have, we have modern medicine. And I would agree with you, I am grateful for those gifts of common grace. But you know what else we have? We have riots and we have murders. We have violence in the womb. We have a dismissal and a, and a, and a lack of care and concern for our elderly. We have power, power battles. We have, we have entire aspects of our culture that are marginalized just because they don't have as much money as other people. This is what wisdom has gotten us. Some of the oldest nations on earth are still trying to wipe one another out in Europe right now. And we have the folly where we can't even speak with clarity about the most basic aspects of creation. In fact, if we do speak with any clarity, we're considered bigots. You recognize God is still saying to us, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I tell you, folks, sometimes preaching is difficult, but sometimes it's easy. 
And it's pretty easy to preach this because there's folly everywhere. And by the way, that folly sometimes show up, shows up in my own heart and life. In the way I treat the people I love, in the, in the way that I pursue the things that I think I want to pursue, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God's Word shows it, and man's experiences show it. The third de- developmental question as we come to verse 21 is, so what? I mean, what difference did this make? What difference does it make? What difference do these claims about the cross make? In other words, why does this matter? Well, verse 21 explains that to us. Because basically what we find in verse 21 is not only is God's folly the greatest power, it's also the greatest hope. God's folly is the greatest hope. Look at what the Bible says, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, go back with me. Look at it again. It's the wisdom of God. It's through the wisdom of God. It's in God's wisdom that the world did not know God through wisdom. There is a sense in which, watch this, be careful. There is always human responsibility, but alongside human responsibility, if not we can say over human responsibility, there's also the ordaining working of God. And what this text tells us is that there's a reason that human creativity, sophistication, eloquence, philosophy, there's a reason this can't get us to God. Because God has designed it that way. It is God's purpose. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. The all-wise ordaining God has ordained all things such that fallen finite humanity and ingenuity cannot access genuine knowledge of God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. It's it's as though, and you understand the mind of God doesn't work this way, but it's as though God said in the very beginning, it's as though God, and once again, please forgive this, because God doesn't make decisions like this. God knows all things. But for the sake of our understanding, bear with me for a moment. It's as though God said, there are two ways that people perhaps could access me. But because of their sinfulness, there's no way they're going to be able to access me through human wisdom. And God set it up in such a way that it was through the very opposite of human wisdom. The folly of what is preached. And what is that folly? The folly of what is preached is the God-man crucified on a cross. It's, a, it's as though, and again, forgive me, it's as though God said, this is what they would prefer, this is what I'm going to give them. And the reason I'm going to give them is because if they come at it this way, what does that end up doing? It just exalts themselves. But I'll bring them to a place of low, lowness, I'll bring them to a place of need, I'll bring them to a place of humility, to where they have to embrace a message that is shameful, and that is surprising, and that is unexpected, and that is weak, and that apparently in the world system has no power at all. And God says, that's where I'm going to place my power. And that's where I'm going to give my hope. That's the way I'll give people hope, is through a message that no one would ever expect. And that's what we have. The folly, it says in the middle of verse 21, the folly of what we preach. That's the cross. That's 
Jesus' sacrifice, his substitution for us. That's the the image of Jesus as a lamb whose blood is shed, whose life is given. That in a world system is foolishness, it's weakness, it's shame. That's the way I'll save those. And notice at the very end of the verse, look at it once more for me. To save those who, it doesn't say who labor, thank God. It doesn't say to save those who keep the commandments. Do you notice that? Can you say amen about that? It doesn't say those who are worthy. It doesn't say those who are really, really sincere. Who does God save? He saves those who believe. Those who trust. Those who believe. You see, human wisdom, once again, over here, human wisdom, what it always does is it imagines scales of justice. We're going to come to God and my good works are going to outweigh my bad works. And even though I've got some really bad works there, I've done a lot of good works. And, and therefore, that's, that's human ingenuity when it comes to God. If, if there's ever even a thought of judgment, that's the way it's thought of. So it's, a, it's the scales of justice. And you know what God says? God says, do away with that. Here's the symbol. It's a cross. The great English pastor John Stott said it this way. He said, the symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross, not the scales. And this is gospel hope. Do you know where we would be if God said the way that you'll find forgiveness, the way you'll find salvation, the language of this text, the way you'll be delivered is by just doing your best, by by measuring up to my standard, by, by being holy, by obeying all the commandments. What hopelessness that would be. And do you know that some of you, I'm, I'm, I started to say I would bet on it, but you can't say that when you're a pastor, particularly, particularly a Baptist, I guess. But, but I'm standing here, and I know that there are some of you who are here this morning. I know it. And you're still thinking that's the way you come into God's favor. And you either think you've messed up so badly that there's no use, or maybe you're so proud that you're not willing to humble yourself and admit that it's not going to be on the basis of your performance. God saves the ones who believe. That's what this text says. They are the ones who are called. The ones in verse 24, they're called the called. We'll see that in a moment. Here in verse 21, they're the believers. Up in verse 18, they're the ones who are being saved. God's folly is really your only hope. And I should just mention... The issue here is the content of the preaching, not the demeanor and approach of the preacher. It's not that God wants fools for preachers. It's not that God wants preachers to get up and preach foolishly. And it's not that we're to be as offensive as we can possibly be because after all, the message of the cross is offensive. That's not the case at all. We're to be people who love, those of us who preach especially, but this application is for all of our lives. It's the message that's offensive. Our behavior and demeanor should not be offensive. And you know as well as I do what a tragic thing it is when people get those things conflated. Well, you know, the message of the cross is not going to be accepted and it's offensive, so I'm just going to be a jerk to everybody and somehow think they're honoring God. It's the content of the preaching There's also an aspect of the preaching itself, because after all, a lot of people don't like to be preached to, right? 
But God designed that. But He designed it in a way that makes preaching a dangerous thing. If you're like me and sarcastic, you have to be careful. So despite this good news, look at what happens. That fourth question is, what does this look like in real life? And we find that in verses 22 and 23. Look at it. It divides people into two categories. That's how it shows up in real life. Everything we're talking about this morning, the responses, there's essentially, it boils down to one of two responses. The first one in verses 22 and 23, broadly people respond in proud disbelief. Proud disbelief. And Paul, to the Corinthians, he gives two examples. The way the Jews respond. Look in verse 22, the first part of the verse. For Jews demand signs. That's a stunning phrase. They demand signs. Now stop and think about that for a moment. Before the holy God of the universe, the approach of the Jewish religion at the time of Paul was, we haven't seen enough signs. Give us more. By the way, this is not anti-Semitism. It's just a description of how the Jews responded. If you're uncomfortable with that, hang on, because we're going to get to the Greeks in just a moment. But the Jews wanted signs. They wanted to be in the driver's seat. Everything God had done in what we call the Old Testament, everything God had done in the life of Jesus Christ, what did the Jews end up saying? They said, still not enough. I'm not satisfied. Give me more. You see this from the life of Jesus. In Matthew 16, remember the story? The Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be a stormy, stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Watch this. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And you know what Jesus does there? He goes back to the cross, even though they didn't catch it. Because what happens on the cross? Jesus dies, and he's buried, and he's three days in the tomb, just like Jonah in the whale. You want a sign, Jesus says? We're going to give you a sign. The sign's going to be the cross. From Jesus, there were abundant, astonishing signs. You know the miracle stories. The book of John is arranged around seven great miracles that were signs for people to see the reality of who Jesus was. One author says it this way, the sign-seeking Jews were blind to the significance of the greatest sign of all. Well, what about the Gentiles, the Greeks? Well, verse 22, the last part of the verse says, Greeks, what do they seek? They're not seeking signs. They seek wisdom. They're the sophisticated ones, right? Remember what happened when Paul was in Athens, that great center of Greek learning in Acts 17? Let me read part of that story for you. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And so Paul begins to preach. And picking it up in verse 30, he says, Now God commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again later about this. So Paul went out from their midst. What was going on here? Well, Luke explains it back up in verse 21 where he says this, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Wisdom. Wisdom. The Greeks, after centuries of searching, they were presented with divine wisdom that was rooted in eternity. And they said, not for us. Not for us. We'll hear you later. You say some interesting things. We can't buy this resurrection stuff. The wisdom-loving Greeks could not discern the most profound wisdom of all. That same author says. That's what happens. There's a response of proud unbelief. And we still see it today. But look at what happens in verse 23. But we preach... Christ crucified. Literally, we read Christ crucified. Christ is basically Messiah. They're synonyms. Messiah crucified. And you recognize what that sounded like, and even today sounds like, to Jewish people. Christ, the Messiah, crucified. This is what we preach. Let me pause. Like the old guy says, you've heard me say it before, let me stop preaching and say something important. All right, so let me stop preaching and say something important. It's sarcasm, by the way. <laughs> I want this church to grow. In our efforts to revitalize, I want God to bring new, fresh people eager to hear the gospel, people who are in dead churches that aren't hearing the word preached well. I want people who have no relationships in their churches to come and find the relationship that God has given us as a family. I want this church to grow. But it is a strategy of suicide to make the message of salvation more palatable for people so that they'll show up at church. And while this is preaching to the choir, because you all have not been involved in it, this is what is happening in churches in our culture, in America especially. The decision is we can't really go with what the Bible says because it's so offensive sounding, and so we're going to water it down in such a way that people will come and they'll find out that Jesus loves them. Two weeks in the Super Bowl, you're going to see commercials. It's a, it's a billion-dollar campaign about the fact Jesus gets us. He gets us. And you watch those commercials, and they're heartwarming, and they're affirming, and like, Jesus cares about people. Well, yes, he does. But those commercials are not going to say one single thing about sin, about repentance, about the cross. You know, Jesus gets us, and it got him hung on a cross. And the message of Christ crucified cannot be made more palatable. And this is what Paul is saying. The Jews want one thing, the Greeks want another, but we're just going to preach Christ crucified. And what is it? It's a stumbling block 
to the Jews. Literally the idea there in verse 23, it's a snare, it's a trap that trips someone up. Because after all, a crucified Messiah is for them an oxymoron, if not blasphemy. So it's a stumbling block to them and folly to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. Now, the reason this is, I won't go into a lot of detail about this, but especially you college students, you recognize this. In Greek philosophy and in Greek religion, the gods, either on the popular level of the Greek culture, the Roman culture, the gods were so self-centered, they didn't care about men. So why would a god come and die? On a more sophisticated level of Greek and Roman philosophy, the gods, they couldn't be touched with human suffering at all. And besides, they would never incarnate into flesh because there was this thing of they were already in the spirit world. Why would they get involved in the physical world? So that was, that's the reason the message of Jesus, God in flesh and then dying on the cross, that was the reason it was folly to them. And one more reason is because whatever heroes they had, whatever saviors the Romans or the Greeks believed in, in whatever level of their theology, whether it's a popular level or a more philosophical level, in whatever level, all saviors and all heroes were winners. They didn't hang naked on a cross. You see, the image of Jesus hanging on a cross is the image of a loser in the ancient world. And so Gentile people said, that's foolishness. Not buying that. And that's the response of proud unbelief. To the Jews, they received the greatest sign, but it was a stumbling block. It should have been their foundation stone. It was a stumbling block to them. And to Gentiles, genuine wisdom, they classified it as folly. Well, fortunately, there's one more group. That's one group. The Jews and the Gentiles together, proud unbelief. But look at verse 24. There's also those who respond in humble faith to this message of power and this message of hope. They respond in humble faith. And notice who they are, verse 24. But to those who are called. Now, by the way, I won't camp on this this morning. But you recognize we want to say, well, surely everybody's called. I mean, surely everybody's called. That is not the way the New Testament uses that term. Whenever the New Testament uses this term of being called, it's what the theologians call an effectual call. It brings about life. And this is God who does this. Yes, we believe and we repent, but somehow that believing and repenting is part of God's mysterious call that he gives to those who are saved. But to those who are called, whether Jews or Greeks, God shows his power. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's the message. The Christ of the cross. Not the Christ of the manger. Not the Christ in the temple. Not the Christ beside the Sea of Galilee. Not the Christ of Wall Street. Not the Christ of the university. Not the Christ of the therapy clinic. But Jesus who hung on a cross. That's where our hope is found because that's where our power is found. The wisdom of a crucified Savior. Now let me close by reminding you of this. This is a polemic. It's a polemic against worldly wisdom and being enamored with sophistication and status and worldliness. 
instead of owning our identity as people of a crucified Savior. But in this polemic, it's possible for us to miss what good news this is. This is good news. And the reason it's good news is because if salvation, if power and hope come from wisdom, what if you're not wise enough? What if, what, what if you just are not smart enough? What if you're not clever enough? What if the people in your life, they give you misleading wisdom? Where's your hope? Where's your power? The good news of this is it's not dependent upon our own creativity, our own wisdom, our own choices, our own, the own, our own philosophies. It's all rooted in the work of God in Jesus Christ. And that is good news. That should give us a sense of hope. Look at verse 25, the last verse. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And what this text tells us is God's got this. Why would we give away our connection with this great hope and this great power for something that is so fleeting and proves itself to be so useless and so impotent? In the context, there's a reminder, back up in verse 7, that Jesus is coming back one day. And he's got this. And whatever the immediate circumstances of our lives might look like, and sometimes they look heartbreaking or tragic or just filled with mess. But the message of 1 Corinthians, the message of the gospel, the message of the word of the cross is that God is the one to trust because look at what he has accomplished through weakness. Look at what he has accomplished through shame. And when we come together every Lord's Day, every Sunday we come together, we rehearse this. We we remind ourselves of this. We hit reset again and ask ourselves, have we yielded to the wisdom of this world or are we Are we clinging to the wisdom of a crucified cross, Christ, and a cross? Remember what Paul said? Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We glory in the cross. Your takeaway today, there is glory in the weakness of Christ crucified. There is glory in the in the apparent weakness of Jesus Christ dying in the place of sinners like us. And the world has nothing better to offer than that. Father, speak to our hearts today and remind us of the wonder of the cross, the ground of the gospel. Glorify yourself in our lives. Do your work through the Holy Spirit. And do your work in our church that we might be a place, a place in which we never waver from the glory of this message of weakness and shame. Remind us that there is glory in it. Father, do this work in our individual lives because we all feel drawn away and seduced by the wisdom of this world, our reputation or what others think of us or what seems appealing 
what gives immediate gratification because some of these things we're talking about, we know, Lord, the ultimate fulfillment will be when Jesus returns. And so sometimes it's easy, Father, it's easy for us, we confess, to be drawn away by temporal things. But help us recognize that what you have done for us in Jesus is the source of our power and the only source of our hope. And indeed, we can rejoice that there is glory in this difficult message. Work in our lives in ways that please you. And if there are any with us, surely there are some, who are still holding out, who are still either skeptical or insisting on going their own way or clinging to the wisdom of this world, I pray that you through your Holy Spirit would today call them, as the text says, that you would call them to faith and repentance. Help them embrace this message of weakness, which is their only hope. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen.